Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, May 13th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. How Netflix's new top 10 lists actually work, some other features they're testing out, and what their findings mean for the future of algorithmic recommendations. Plus, how drones are helping change what we thought we knew about great white sharks, in both good ways and not-so-good ways. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So Netflix, like every other platform out there, uses an algorithm to recommend content to you based on your viewing behavior and whatever other data it has about you. Even categories it displays like trending and popular are tailored to you individually. It's kind of like Twitter's default for you trending display. Like, Yes, those terms are actually trending in the location you selected, but they're not necessarily the exact top trends. They're the top trends as curated for you. And the same goes for Netflix. As Vulture explains it, if you've been watching a lot of crime shows, you might see The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel on the trending list. But if you watch more sitcoms and comedies, you might see Schitt's Creek instead. They're both hugely popular on Netflix right now, so they are both trending, but they're also tailored for you. Recently, however, Netflix has been testing out actually objective recommendations with their top 10 lists, which personally, I find hilarious. When they rolled out the top 10 lists last year, which displays the top 10 TV shows and movies on the platform, they were heralded as taking an innovative approach. I mean, have we been so brainwashed by algorithms over the last few years that objective data-based recommendations are now seen as innovative? I mean, I can't wait for Instagram to bring back chronological feeds and call it an innovative new creation. We're disrupting algorithmic marketing. Alright, anyways, so those top 10 lists were actually in the works for a number of years. It began as an experiment based on the company's realization that a big motivation in what some people choose to watch is actually just what everyone else is watching. Todd Yellen, Netflix's VP on product, told Vulture, quote, Some people, what they really want to see is, what is everyone watching? They want to be in the conversation. Everyone's talking about Queen's Gambit. I see it's number one on Netflix. Damn, I want in on that action. So now, to complement the personalization of the algorithm, we also highlight popularity. End quote. But how are the top ten lists tabulated? Quoting Vulture, Netflix admits its rankings aren't based on the average audience size of a title, the way Nielsen measures linear TV consumption. Instead, the streamer uses what it calls a chose-to-watch standard, which tallies how many people sample at least two minutes of a given title. Netflix opted for this metric because it evens out disparities in program length and episode count. We had to level the playing field, Yellen explains. 
There's logic in that. Nielsen's streaming ratings are flawed in part because they measure millions of minutes consumed, giving an hour-long show with hundreds of episodes, like Grey's Anatomy, a massive advantage over a newer title with just a fraction of the creative input, such as Special, whose first season was barely two hours long in total. End quote. After realizing in earlier tests, which just updated the top 10 lists once a week, that people lost interest when they were static, the lists are now updated every 24 hours by country. With that tweak, Netflix observed that users in test locations with the top 10 lists were watching for longer periods and finding a wider variety of content. Vulture points out that Netflix probably could get even more specific since they do famously have so much data to go by. For example, execs told Vulture in 2018 that one metric they really look at is how many people finish a full season of a show within 28 days of its release. So far, however, there's no indication they use that or other such metrics for their top 10 lists. And like so much else on the platform, we just have to take their word for it. Are the shows being displayed as the top 10 in your country actually the top 10 movies or TV shows getting that minimum two minutes chose to watch tick? Skeptics wonder if the top 10 list is really just Netflix promoting its own content, or if the system designed to make the cut favors their original shows and movies. Netflix pushes back on this. Cameron Johnson, who oversees product innovation for the Netflix TV interface, said, quote, Continuing to show somebody a title that they're not interested in doesn't help anybody, end quote. Their whole point with these top 10 lists is to get people to watch more and longer, so recommending people content they're not interested in is fruitless. As skeptical as we may be about the true objectivity of these lists, the truth is this is the closest to transparent Netflix has ever been in a public-facing capacity, which has caused both excitement and distress for filmmakers. Unlike Nielsen ratings and the box office numbers, if your show or movie went straight to streaming, you didn't really have a public, objective number to reflect its performance. Now, at least on Netflix, you do. And while the top 10 lists have already made a few shows, it's not quite at the point of breaking those that don't make the cut. But in comparing it to those other public ratings, I wonder if we might start seeing this feature that many of us view as simply another recommendation portal actually take on a legitimate role in TV and film. And I guess in that way, I do have to grudgingly admit that it is kind of innovative. If this little feature on a streaming platform can have such a huge impact on a show's success and therefore affect future funding for that studio or filmmakers and have all kinds of other ripple effects, it is a big deal. And it's an interesting cycle, too, because Netflix admits that when they first quietly changed the popular on Netflix row to be objective and not personalized in some test markets, they didn't really see a big response from subscribers. I didn't even notice the full rollout as unique until I started seeing press talk about different movies debuting at number one on Netflix. It's like one of those things that has to be made a big deal before it can become a big deal. Meanwhile, Netflix is continuing to tweak the product. Miriam Brema, lead product designer for the Netflix TV app, shared with Vulture some possible updates they're considering, like the ability to change your location so that you could see what's trending in other places you're not currently in, or even making those thematic, like, hey, the Olympics are happening, here's what's popular in Japan right now. Or the idea of breaking the top 10 list into categories, like the top 10 comedy specials, the top 10 documentaries, etc. Or revealing the most thumbs-up titles. They're also working on some major changes to the home interface, which would incorporate some of these new recommendation features. Quoting Vulture, 
Brema showed me early mock-ups of various ideas, including one which mirrors a vertical Billboard Hot 100 chart, and another which looks like an old-fashioned day planner. The most radical features a cable news-like ticker, with the popularity rankings of various Netflix titles scrolling across the screen like stock prices. New and popular might also get its own sound cue, so that when you clicked into the tab, you'd hear a few seconds of music, something similar to ESPN's SportsCenter riff or the NBC chimes. There might even be an opening animation to welcome you into the section, similar to the stylized N that plays at the start of all Netflix originals, end quote. And I'm sorry to report, they're also working on adding more video-forward features, stuff that autoplays when you scroll over it. Though fortunately, they are aware that at least half of Netflix subscribers, as Vulture puts it, quote, would rather have their eyes gouged out than be subjected to any sort of autoplaying content, end quote. At least they're aware. And I find this whole return to objective recommendations thing fascinating. Because the subtext of algorithmic recommendations is that your behavior says more about what you want to see than what you think you want to see. It's the idea that maybe it's easier to make a decision when you're just presented with stuff you're already likely to enjoy. But the reason Netflix decided to try objective recommendations is because, apparently, a lot of us find enjoyment in what others are enjoying. It's like two sides of the same coin. You know, we're still not fully making the decision ourselves, but it seems maybe we'd rather pick something a little different from our usual taste with mass appeal than the same old filter bubble of content we've been stuck in. For years, big tech companies have fought back against our complaints about algorithms by saying that their data on our behavior proves us wrong, no matter what we self-report. That we spend more time engaging with content when it's algorithmically organized or recommended. And I believe them in certain contexts, and I do think even those of us who tried to resist for a while have now changed our behaviors to passively follow the algorithms. So it's very intriguing that the data, at least on Netflix, has sort of shifted. Hyper-personalized algorithms might be losing a little of their power. As people return to the beach in earnest this summer, I have good news and bad news for you. It turns out there may be way more sharks near us in the water than we thought, but... They're not attacking people. If anything, this is all-around good news. The fact that there are more sharks than were accounted for, but the same amount of attacks, means that generally, the sharks don't exist solely to chomp on humans. Where does this info come from? Drones. Carlos Guana is one of several researchers using drone cameras to study great white sharks off the California coast. Great white sharks were previously thought to be fairly rare in the southern waters, but the use of drones has shown that there are actually quite a lot of them around pretty much all the time. Christopher Lowe, a professor of marine biology and director of the Shark Lab at Cal State Long Beach, where he's conducting a drone survey to determine what type of beachgoer is most likely to encounter a shark and where exactly that might happen, told the LA Times, quote, Drones have become such a valuable tool for us scientists now. It gives us a bird's eye view that we didn't have before. The surfers can't see them, the swimmers can't see them, but we can now see them from the air. And in those cases, the sharks just don't seem to change their path. Sometimes they'll swim right under a surfer, but they don't circle back. They just keep going. End quote. 
That's not to say that all the sharks the researchers found are docile. Guana saw one approaching a couple of young kids floating in shallow waters and fortunately was able to get them to leave the water soon enough for the shark to turn away and lose interest. Sometimes, though, he's too far away to give people warnings. He's been trying to find a drone that could put out some kind of alert if, say, it's hovering over a surfer and spots a shark the surfer can't see, as happened on the same day Guana saved those kids from the shark. And Guana and Lo say they always alert lifeguards when they spot the sharks, but there's not too much that can be done. Sightings of smaller sharks are so frequent that they can't shut the beach down every time one is spotted. And the frequency of sightings is not entirely just that drones are spotting more of them. Lowe points out that the ban on gill nets in nearshore waters in 1994 meant great white sharks and other marine mammals saw a slow rebound in population over the last couple of decades. Plus, warmer weather from climate change means Southern California might be more appealing to the sharks than it was before. And in good news for humans, I think... Stingrays have also experienced a population boom, and as a favorite snack of sharks, that means there's more for them to eat. Of course, we humans have also driven off one of their other sources of food, pinniped rookeries. So adult sharks are forced to go hunt around Central California and the Channel Islands for elephant seals and sea lions, keeping their young in Southern California to feed on the stingrays. And where exactly they tend to congregate in Southern California changes each year. And experts like Guana and Lo try to keep that knowledge on the down low because apparently some boat operators will go there to attract them for tours. Good for their bottom line, I guess, but horrible for people swimming at beaches that sharks are being trained to go back to for food. Guana says, quote, My sentiment is leave them alone. Let sharks be sharks. If you have an encounter, give them space. They've always been here. End quote. And he raises a good point at the end there. Sharks have almost 400 million years on us humans. As the LA Times points out, quote, in evolutionary terms, we're still novelties. End quote. And if the evidence from all these drone sightings is any indication, that's about all we are to them. Sometimes their curiosity, confusion, or fear will result in biting a human, but it looks like the vast majority, at least of these younger great white sharks in California, are just hanging out, snacking on stingrays, and generally ignoring all these newfangled humans in their water. Well, speaking of Netflix, here's a bit of news that probably only me and your 11-year-old daughter are excited about. Netflix announced today that Enola Holmes, the Sherlock Holmes spin-off film from last year starring Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill, is officially getting a sequel. Enola Holmes follows Sherlock and Mycroft's younger sister Enola on a series of misadventures. The first movie, and presumably the sequel as well, is based on a series of middle-grade books written by Nancy Springer. Netflix was sued over the first movie by the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle estate for, as The Verge puts it, quote, giving Sherlock too many feelings, end quote. Now, while that sounds kind of ridiculous and like a pretty big deal, I did a segment back in August about how that's actually pretty par for the course with most Sherlock Holmes adaptations these days. The estate has been fighting to retain the rights to Doyle's stories forever, and at the moment, only retains the rights for some of the later stories in some nations. And in those later stories, Sherlock is markedly more sympathetic as a character. And as he can't really produce a movie these days without some kind of pathos, most recent adaptations make him a bit of an emotional guy, and thus the estate swoops in and tries to sue them over it, rinse and repeat. 
If you want to hear more about all of that, I'll put a link in the show notes to the old episode I did on it. And seriously, the first Enola Holmes movie was great. I mean, if you've got a preteen, definitely watch it with them. But hey, even for adults, it was pretty good. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.